Hello, everyone. I am Carter. Welcome to Trust Don't Verify. I'm here with the Hellbilly Deluxe himself, Brett. Brett, say hello. Hello. Very good. And special <laughs> guest. Just a guest. I was never given a name. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Brett, can you explain Trust Don't Verify to me and everyone else? Yes. Uh, Aaron uh, Careers. Uh, can we take this again? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at a point. Uh, yeah, so this is the uh, the show where uh, two of us tell a story, but only one of us is telling the truth. Uh, and that will always be me. I will uh, always be telling the truth. Except for today, when you're not telling a story at all. <laughs> at all. But I, but I will still be truthful. I will not tell a lie. <laughs> Sounds great. Cool. All right. So, um, so Carter and I are telling the stories today. Carter, do you want to go first or do you want me to? I... I think you should go first. I've been dying to hear what is going to come out of your mouth, and we'll cut that too. So I don't know. <laughs> no, what we're we doing won't here. cut that. Yeah. We're not doing that. All right. Great. So uh, I will start. Um, any questions or anything like that, any interjections or anything are absolutely discouraged and will be met with great vengeance. Wow. Not really. Please interrupt and ask questions. Whenever you want. I wrote the beginning part of my script here as sort of theatrical, so bear with me. <laughs> At the end of World War II, tensions between the United States and the USSR were higher than ever. Holy shit. Okay, I'm not going to read like that. Um, <laughs> tensions between the United States and the USSR were higher than ever as the two competing worldviews they represented struggled for power in multiple bloody and protracted proxy wars and skirmishes across the globe. But ironically, there was perhaps no greater symbol of this moment in world history and the conflict between the two greatest superpowers ever known than the relatively peaceful division of the recently defeated German state into the socialist USSR-backed East and the capitalist US-aligned West and the oppressive stone metaphor erected between them in 1961, the Berlin Wall. How's that? Good start? <laughs> Great. I want to hear more about this erect uh, (laughs) metaphor. Rock solid. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. All right. So if we dig just a bit beyond the surface, however, we'll find that the facade of peacefulness in Cold War Germany is only skin deep. It's been spoken about at length how East German border guards... (laughs) What? <laughs> Why? Keep going, get keep going. Deep in that skin. <laughs> keep keep just thinking keep about going. it. Yeah, keep going. I'm it's almost been, there. I'm almost there. It's been spoken about at length how East German border forces would often mercilessly mow down those who tried to escape over the wall to the more democratic Western side. And it's certainly no secret that personal freedom and prosperity were not abundant in East Germany. However, United States government documents that were originally partially leaked in the 1970s and were finally officially declassified during the Trump administration in 2019, have cast a morally gray shadow on what was once thought to be a more black-and-white picture of good versus evil. While the U.S. military's use of of the chemical herbicide Agent Orange and its effects on the Vietnamese population and American veterans is widely documented, a more pernicious application of chemical warfare was undertaken, or at least attempted, in West Germany before the Vietnam War even began. You see, Agent Orange was ostensibly only ever meant to be used as an herbicide. It just happened to contain high levels of carcinogenic material, which accidentally, supposedly, quote-unquote accidentally, caused lifelong health issues in not only the residents of Vietnam, 
whose forests it was used to destroy, but also the veterans who handled and dispensed the material. The experimentation that happened in West Germany in the early 1950s, however, has no such benign excuse for its occurrence. It may come as no surprise to you that when it comes to people who are fond of particularly clever and evil means of killing and torturing mass numbers of people, there were quite a few in Germany around this time who had, shall we say, extensive qualifications. No way. <laughs> Carter, there right was this at, thing. Right after World War II? Right, right, during World War II, they were doing it, and then afterwards they were just kind of hanging around. Where have I been? American education system. <laughs> True. <laughs> One such man uh, was Otto Ambrose, chief chemical warfare officer for the Nazis during World War II. Ambrose was convicted and sentenced to prison, not death, at the Nuremberg trials, but was released from prison in 1951 due to good behavior, or perhaps due to his usefulness to the Army Chemical Corps of the United States, as they charged him with the role of chief scientist on Operation Watershed a recently formed task force designed to covertly use chemical warfare on the population of East Germany as a means to push the USSR to abandon German occupation altogether. Now, it was important to the government officials in charge of this project, however, that they use Ambrose's talents in a very different way than they'd been used before, with the USSR and the United States both wielding enough atomic bombs at this time to wipe out all human life on the planet, a direct application of any form of chemical warfare would very probably have meant the end of life on Earth. This constraint also precluded indirectly poisoning large portions of the East German population, as it would become immediately apparent to political leaders in the USSR what was happening if suspiciously thousands of people just happened to become very ill in a place that they shared a border with essentially a U.S. proxy state. Now, surprisingly, or perhaps not, when presented with these constraints, Ambrose was reportedly confident he could achieve the desired outcome anyway. According to reports, before the infrastructure required for the concentration camps was established, the Nazi regime had adopted a much more patient approach to achieve their goal laid forth in the final solution. And Ambrose had spent substantial amount of time preparing plans designed to chemically sterilize and undermine the ability of undesirable populations to produce and provide for themselves. Here's where we get into sort of the um, red meat of this, I suppose you could say, for uh, tinfoil hat types. Is this the buns? Is this like the buns? The buns? Yeah, because we just ate through the buns and now we're getting to the meat. Now we're finally getting to That would have been the lettuce I just gave you. Which is always my dream. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Eating through the buns to get to the meat. All right. So. (laughs) Book it. Book it. Ambrose had been experimenting with many different approaches towards the end of the war, but had found promising results using a somewhat recently commercialized hormone, estrogen. Ambrose had found that estrogen, when combined with certain other more bioavailable chemicals and ingested by concentration camp prisoners via food or water, made even the most difficult male prisoners more docile and easier to control. The only problem with this plan was the only known source of synthetic estrogen at the time was synthesized from the urine of pregnant horses. (laughs) The supply, sorry, and the supply, though increasing, was still very low. What do you mean increasing? <laughs> no, please continue. I mean, horses just getting more pregnant. More all of a horses, sudden. more pregnancies, more pee. Getting thirsty over here. Make me thirsty. <laughs> uh, yeah. So while government officials work towards increasing and obtaining a reliable supply of synthetic estrogen, West German spies set to work placing agents in East German municipal water facilities. 
In an effort to secure a reliable supply of estrogen for this scheme, the government bought almost a thousand mares, that would be female horses, and an incredibly large supply of horse semen in order to impregnate them on demand and set up a facility in southwestern Utah called Quail Creek Ranch <laughs> for semen or, or for horse, horse. fetuses. <laughs> Deal choice. You kind of need both, I guess. Three um, course meal, baby. Yeah. Three. Oh, P. Um, okay. So, yes, the government bought a thousand mares and an incredibly large supply of horse semen and set up not a facility. A Are drinks the course? Drinks are not a course, right? Drinks are an apartif. Apartif. I mean, they can. Apartif. That's a. It's a course of sorts. I don't eat things I can't spell. <laughs> that's why you lost so much weight recently. Yeah. <laughs> 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 all right, all right. So they bought the mares and the semen and set up a facility in southwestern Utah called Quail Creek Ranch, dedicated solely to creating synthetic estrogen for this operation. However, by the time this facility was operational, a certain Dwight D. Eisenhower, a Republican, had become president of the United States in 1953, and together with bipartisan support from Congress, they balanced the federal budget, with one of the many many funding cuts required coming to Operation Watershed and Quail Creek Ranch. So the federal government ended up selling Quail Creek Ranch and all the horses and facilities to pharmaceutical company Merck the president of which was a classmate of Eisenhower's at Army Industrial College. And according to the University of Rochester, by 1992, Premarin, the branded name for synthetic estrogen, was the number one prescribed drug in the United States, with sales exceeding a billion dollars by 1997. But that is a conspiracy for another time. Thus ends Ooh. the story of Operation Watershed. Okay. Oh, I wish you put some more effort into that. That seemed... Uh... Yeah, next time I'll try to make it more theatrical or maybe no. just a little better researched or just yeah, it, it in just, every possible it just way. thrown together, you know. Like Honestly, a, he lost me when he was like, oh, tension between the U.S. and the USSR. I'm like, really? Okay, this one's clearly the lie. <laughs> yeah, made this up. is truly fake. I mean, come on. No, that, that was amazing. That was amazing. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think uh, – so Aaron's telling the truth, so I guess we might as well just <laughs> – Save on our record time here. <laughs> yeah, it's free, but we yeah. might as well just save on it. <laughs> Cut our costs down from zero to like zero. We, we get paid. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for hyping Aaron up before I even get a chance to say anything. But I suppose that I'm going to start now. And I also have an intro and I'm also important. So let me have a moment. Let's hear it. Take your moment. I don't have an intro, but I'm going to say I am chosen <laughs> to present the historical account of a magical battle between an esoteric occult group and the self-proclaimed most evil man alive. This is the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn versus the most evil man alive. Currently alive? Brandon. Can't say. Ever alive? <clears throat> Let me start. Formed in <laughs> approximately 1887, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, often referred to as the Golden Dawn, believe it or not, was a secret society that devoted itself to the studies and teachings of metaphysics and what is known as occult hermeticism. The magical order was active in Great Britain in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and many ritual magics of the current day draw their roots and inspiration from the Golden Dawn, including Wicca and Thelema. This makes the teachings of the Golden Dawn the largest influence of modern Western occultism. You said Wicca and who? Thelema! <laughs> Any more questions? 
No, that's all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Heavily based in ritualistic principles, the Golden Dawn's foundational documents gave details of the raid rituals of the Order. These are teachings that involve alchemy, geomancy, astrology, and tarot, like tarot cards. These documents were derived from the cipher manuscripts, which were bequeathed to Reverend Adolphus Frederick Alexander Woodford by the Masonic scholar Kenneth McKenzie. When Woodford passed away in 1887, another Freemason, William Wynne Westcott, managed to decode the cipher manuscripts. WWW for, like, in a web address. Yeah, it was crazy. It's named after him. <laughs> it was a piece of wood, and he kept, he was like, hold on. <laughs> I got to put HTTPS, not HTTP, duh. And then he car- carved it right in, and it, then it showed. Eric, that's where it came from. World's first computer. Uh. <laughs> 1887, believe it or not. <laughs> After decoding the documents, yet another Freemason, Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, was asked for a second opinion on the texts. Westcott, who had originally decoded the cipher manuscripts, wanted Mathers' assistance in turning the teachings into a system for a new type of lodge. Mathers then asked William Robert Woodman, to help with this task, which he accepted. Both Mathers and Westcott are credited with developing the rituals into a workable format from the cipher manuscripts. Mathers is generally credited with the curriculum and rituals of the second order. 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 <laughs> order. Order. <laughs> order in the court. Well, we moved the jersey over here. <laughs> Via a system he called Ruby Rose and I'm Golden Cross. Here. Sorry. I wanted to get <laughs> Very good. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, Sorry. Uh, I think I quit. Via a system he called Ruby Rose and Golden Cross, which would be used to derive the Golden Dawn structure and grades. They are as follows. First order. Neophyte. Zelotor. Mm. Wow. Euricus. Practicus. Philosophus. Intermediate portal grade. <laughs> These are Yu-Gi-Oh cards. This is the first one? <laughs> That's the first order. Are you guys ready for the second order? Are you kidding? That's yeah. the first one? That's the first order. I thought order. you were just listing all of them and you weren't naming which one was which. No, this is the second order. Oh my God. Adeptus Minor. Adeptus Major. <laughs> Adeptus Exemptus. <laughs> Any questions? That one's much shorter. Magister Templi. Magus. Ipsissimus. <laughs> What Harry Potter book did you get this uh, from? Ipsismus. <laughs> I love it. May I continue? Please. You may. With, with this historical you, account. You must. <laughs> Westcott claimed to have contacted Anna Spargel, a German countess, in 1887 after her address was decoded from the cipher manuscripts. Typed into the computer for those who were following more closely. <laughs> According to Westcott's account of their correspondence, Sprangel was allegedly able to contact the secret chiefs, entities that were considered to be the master authorities over any magical order. Countess Sprangel was said to have given permission to Westcott to establish a temple for the Golden Dawn and informed Westcott that he, Mathers, and Woodman were all to be given the honorary grades of Adeptus Exemptus. The first temple was officially founded in London in 1888. Unlike a traditional order of Freemasons, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn allowed women to join and participate as equals to men. The early days of the Golden Dawn saw a larger focus in philosophical and metaphysical teaching, and save for a select few rituals and meditations from the cipher manuscripts, magical practices were not widely taught at the First Temple. Two more temples came to fruition in 1888, the Osiris Temple in Weston-Subramare and the Horus Temple in Bradford. 
I don't know if I said that right, but I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm riding one it. Louisiana. Yeah, one really French ass <laughs> temple, and then Horace and Bradford. <laughs> One's in the Bayou. <laughs> Following that, there were the Amon Ra Temple in Edinburgh and the Ahathor Temple in Paris, both of which were established in 1893. The more magical practices of the Golden Dawn were on display by the time the latter temples were established. The catalyst to the magical ways beginning to take hold could probably be identified as far back as 1890. That year, Westcott's correspondence with the Countess Anna Sprangel stopped. Westcott claimed to have received word from Germany that the Countess had died, and also that her entourage did not approve of the formation of the order a year before. If Westcott was to speak to the secret chiefs from now on, he would have to find a way on his own, which he claimed he did in 1892. After allegedly establishing contact with the secret chiefs who had permitted him, Woodman, and Mathers to form the Golden Dawn a few years previous, Westcott began supplying magical rituals to the Second Order, essentially laying the framework for the grand magical gestures that were about to entice some unexpected adepts. Are the secret chiefs real? Actually, you should keep listening. Okay, okay. I'm thinking of a real, like, um, Joseph Smith sort of Book of Mormon gold plates in a hat situation. Let's not, let's not get in the pocket here. <laughs> Brett, how you feeling? I feel I'm fucking loving this. Yeah. Okay. It's a good okay. story. It's not a story. It's a historical account. <laughs> by, it's a good historical account. By the mid-1890s, the Golden Dawn had attracted several celebrities of the time as members, including poet William Butler Yeats and perhaps the most famous occultist of all time, self-proclaimed most evil man alive, Aleister Crowley. Self-proclaimed? This was before 1940, so maybe so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crowley was quick to progress through the outer order, the lower ranks of the Golden Dawn. This was most likely a mixture of his obsession with esoteric studies and the wealth he had inherited that allowed him to rub elbows with prominent members and even enlist a senior member of the Golden Dawn to live with him and tutor him in magical practices full time. Probably other stuff too, but you can draw your own conclusions. Full time. That's just Uncle <laughs> Alistair and his male roommate. That Uncle also, Al. That Uncle Al, that also comes into play here. <laughs> Crowley was not well liked by many members of the Golden Dawn due to his amoral lifestyle and taboo bisexuality. The most <laughs> evil man alive <laughs> wasn't well liked? What? Shocking. <laughs> In addition to being widely renowned as pretty much just an overall douche by most of <laughs> <laughs> his his moral shortcomings combined with his proclivity to simply buy his way into chosen lifestyles fizzled deeper and deeper rifts between himself and the other members. Nonetheless, he quickly progressed to the lower rungs of the outer order and was soon ready to enter the group's inner second order. This is when things really came to a head as the London Lodge, where Crowley was extremely unpopular, refused to initiate Crowley into the Second Order. Upon his denial, Crowley visited one of his strongest advocates and co-head of the Order, Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, in Paris at the Ahatur Temple. Mathers, unwisely, since he, he was becoming further and further disenfranchised from the Golden Dawn due to his tightening grip and reckless leadership at the helm, personally admitted Crowley into the Second Order with the grade of Adeptus Minor. Crowley then returned to London, but was barred from entry to the London Temple and told that his new grade was not recognized as official. This could be interpreted as both a disdain for Crowley and a clear message to Mathers that, essentially, people were tired of his overbearing leadership and he was losing power over the order. This enraged Mathers, who retaliated, who retaliated by claiming via a series of proclamations 
that the letters Westcott had received from Countess Anna Sprengel and the secret chiefs were shockingly forged. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Westcott denied these claims vehemently, and William Butler Yeats and the majority of the members of, in London sided with Westcott and the decision to distance themselves from Mathers and Crowley. This caused Mathers and Crowley to devise a plan of action to retake the Order of the Golden Dawn in London. Mathers sent a telegram to members loyal to him and otherwise that there would be a coup and to arrive at Golden Dawn headquarters on Blythe Road in London on April 20th, 420, to seize control of the order. Yeah. <laughs> Told you this shit was magical. Yeah. Brett just sparked up. <laughs> <laughs> William Butler Yeats, having received this telegram and being profoundly unfond of Crowley and Mathers, decided to take action by heroically changing the locks on the door. (laughs) (laughs) What a hero. A modern-day locksmith. Crowley arrived that day prepared for a magical battle. Wearing full Adeptus regalia, a large cross made of gold, a ceremonial dagger, and a black mask. Even though Crowley, his mistress, and a hired groom were the only ones who arrived for the coup, that was enough to overpower the secretary at the door and gain control of most of the building. <laughs> I'm sure it was. The secretary then left to send a telegram to other members asking for help in the situation. Upon returning, it was discovered that Crowley had himself also changed the locks and was now performing <laughs> magical rituals from within the headquarters. Additionally, Crowley had written his own name on the secretary's roll call of the Second Order Adepts to prove his point that he was, in fact, an Adeptus. That'll show him. <laughs> Eventually, one of the temple's initiates arrived after receiving the secretary's telegram and called the police, who promptly asked Crowley and his two disciples to leave, which they did. <laughs> Can you guys just, like, head out? Hold on a second. So somebody was sending a telegram and then somebody else just called the police? Uh, <laughs> called for the police. Okay, I'm not exactly okay, sure okay. how that happened. I can see telegram everybody. Telegram would make that would take a long. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Also, I must commend Crowley's uh, putting his own name on the rolls as evidence that he actually made it. It's sort of like uh, that guy you were telling me about who points to the height on his driver's license as proof that he's actually five ten. Yeah, it's a legal document. Or you could just put it's whatever like, you, you want on want- there. Legal document. That's it's all you need document. to do. It's like, True. see, I'm an adeptus major. It says right there. You know, as long as you, it, as long as you think it and believe it, it's I'll truly it. magical thinking, right? It's why not? So you gotta do. Crowley returned two days later after convincing the landlord to unlock the door for him, since William Butler, William Butler Yates had changed the locks yet again. Inside, Crowley began to seize the building by shouting magical curses at anyone who stood in his way as he ascended the stairs. Yates then kicked Crowley down the stairs in retaliation and convinced the shock landlord to call the police. Call for the police. I don't know the details of the phone. <laughs> well, it's like the 1800s. I, when, when was the phone invented? I don't know. Probably I, I, that I, around then, maybe. I can't look. That that could be the lie in this story. Everything Uh-oh. has to be true. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> we, never I'm really, we never really determined what <laughs> constitutes the fake story. You just, you just have to change one small detail, and that's enough. That's enough for it to be fake. They once again asked Crowley to leave, which he did. Again, Yates then formally ejected Mathers from the roster of the order, but notably did not eject Crowley because he still did not recognize him as an official member. Just kind of an old <laughs> school burn. Yeah. Crowley then sued Yates and the order in civil court in a bid to gain control of the Golden Dawn through legal means, but lost because the court decided to side with whoever was paying the rent. He was ordered to pay five pounds in court costs. And with that, the great flames of the magical siege of London flickered out, 
a reconstruction of the temple's order began, as Mather's ejection caused some unrest and Crowley's disturbance was generally seen as an uncomfortable wave of dissent with ripples throughout the entire organization. Many prominent members splintered allegiance in an attempt to contact the secret chiefs themselves and establish more succinct control over their lodges and ritualistic practices. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Wow. Um, I didn't get applause. Okay. I think he's applauding the general air of both stories. No, I was, I was applauding Carter. Um, sick, sick. <laughs> I, do like, I yeah. do like Crowley just like shouting magical spells at people. I wonder if it worked because it sounds like he progressed pretty far into the temple. I wonder if the people who were spelled at like keeled over and died until Yates was just like, I'm just going to kick this guy. <laughs> maybe they called for the police using like, uh, maybe they had like two cans with like a string. Uh, a oh, string I think there was a the bat tree. signal sort of setup. <laughs> yeah. Like candles, a lot of like oil. Yeah. A bunch of candles, giant mirror. Yeah. Wow. This was uh, both, both really uh, tremendous. Uh, uh, a lot, a lot more effort into these than I was. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I didn't go first <laughs> this, this week because uh yeah, it would have been pretty lopsided, but uh, yeah, two two great uh, two great efforts here. And with that, now it's Brett's time to determine who he thinks is telling the truth and who is lying. All the points are at stake here for Brett. The points being one point. Brett can win up to one point, and he can lose his life. <laughs> the stakes have never been higher. Thank Brett. fucking God. <laughs> Brett, Brett's Thank like, God. you both told the truth. Let me out. Yeah. So, Brett, uh, how are you feeling? You know, one of these stories is more or less true, I'm sure. <laughs> Look, Aaron's story was like, it's one of those things where everything sounded very, very real. And, uh, any deviations felt like they would be slight deviations, but here's the thing: Carter took such a big swing. If 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 his if his if his if his if, his, if he's lying, if he's lying. He took a big swing. I'm like, okay, I got to make this sound real. Um, but to to take to take a swing on like, okay, these are people who are trying to like do fucking like witchcraft and and fucking cast spells and all this kind of stuff. To, to try to pass that as real is a big swing. Um, now. You meet weird people all the time. That's true. Um, and, you know, this whole, did they call the police? Did they call for the police? Very contentious. It's very, <laughs> look, I'm going to have to go back and deliberate on that for a while. Um, so we're going to, I'll be right back. We're going to pause. We're going to go, I'm going to go think about this for six hours. Okay. Okay. All right. And we're back. All right. So I just, I thought about it. Um, I came to the determination that I think Carter is telling the truth here because it's such a big swing that it feels obvious that it's not true. <laughs> but I think for that reason, I got to go Carter. I got to say Aaron the is the reverse lying. psychology alone. That's right. I think Carter is that Depraved. much of an intellectual. Yes. Oh, okay. Depraved <laughs> intellectual. intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> that he would do something like that. Aaron, I, I can't... Okay, because if I'm operating under the assumption that yours is a lie, I can't necessarily pick out what the lie is because it sounded all historical. So historical that it's probably true. And I say probably meaning it is definitely true. <laughs> um, I'm going to lock it in. Carter's telling the truth. Final answer? Final answer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Brett, I was telling the truth. Yes! Oh my <laughs> fucking God, that rocks. That is so great. I love that. Um, my sources for this were mostly Wikipedia and also uh, details on the magical battle. I did re-listen to part of another podcast that anyone listening to this hears, you should check out uh, the last podcast on the left the Aleister Crowley stories. But again, my main source was uh, Wikipedia for both Aleister Crowley and for the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, and we can link those in the yeah, description down below absolutely. if anybody wants to fact check you and figure out the mystery of whether the police were called or phone called or however. Yeah, let, let's uh, let's let's look up right now. What that right now? I think the phone was invented in like 1850. It was, it was in the 1800s for sure. Yeah. Let's see. First phone call, 1876. Yeah. Okay. So it could so have been a real phone call. It probably would have been expensive though. Probably wasn't everywhere. Yeah. Um, wow. So I'm guessing we'll go with they were literally tin can calling or smoke signaling the police as you suggested. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, I originally was going to try to enlist the help of ChatGPT to help me write this. And in fact, I did with some some amount of like outlining, but... Uh, ultimately, once I sort of came up with the idea for um, a, a U.S. government conspiracy led by a former Nazi scientist to poison East Germans with estrogen, um, ChatGPT has some trigger words that if you use them, it won't help you. And I couldn't tell you if it was Nazi or poison with estrogen or what, but uh, ChatGPT refused to write <laughs> me a story about that. So I had to go into my own mind for this. Sick fuck. Poison yeah. with estrogen. He, <laughs> he, he, you do think estrogen is bad. You do think like. Yeah, yeah that's what you're saying. Here. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. not good. Yeah. No, yeah. women are great. Estrogen is bad. Um, but yeah, the, the parts of this story that are made up are all of it, except Otto Ambrose was in fact the chief chemical warfare officer for the Nazis. Wow. A- Agent Orange was also an herbicide. So like the setup was factual at the beginning, but the uh, the plot and everything was... Um, was completely made up. Although I will say the other thing that's true is Quail Creek, Southern, uh, Southern, Southern Utah is actually a reservoir. So I got the name. That's a real name. Was, uh, did the lie kick in after you said this is where the tinfoil, like when, when you, when no, we got the to old, the red meat? Uh, yeah, more or less. So like all the way up to, it may come as no surprise to you than when it comes to people who are fond of particularly clever and evil means. So that paragraph was true up to the point where I said Otto Ambrose was chief chemical warfare officer for the Nazis, but then, well, and that he got released from prison in 1951. That's true as well. But then as they charged him with the role of chief scientist on Operation Watershed, that's where the lie began. This was no Operation Watershed. This wasn't red meat. This was a uh, this was uh, impossible uh, burger. This, oh, this was whoa, beyond whoa, meat. Whoa, whoa, folks! Blistering political commentary. So honestly, was was it hard? So this really was too much of a swing and a miss for me from going too crazy. I'm feeling kind of downtrodden about that. I thought this was going to be just enough historical could be right to make it enticing because I thought Aaron's was brilliant. It sounded like a real history lesson, and there's so much weird stuff that the government does behind the scenes that you learn about and think, wow, I can't believe I never heard that before. It sounds totally legitimate. Uh, I was trying to go sort of a different route with that. Well, wow, I can't believe I never heard that before. It's a terrible story. So, <laughs> No, no. I, I, I meant like, uh, I meant like uh, you know, all, all these little details in here, like uh, because the, the, the people who are into this whole like – 
that that type of world always uh, amazes me. Those people, as you just said, <laughs> yeah, the, the, like you. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I I thought like uh, it's it sounds it's crazy to me that this is real, uh, and I love that. Uh, I I meant like you know um, because Aaron sounds so like uh, it's like so grounded in real world like everyday stuff more or less. You know of like okay war and uh, you know governments doing shady stuff and all that kind of situations, you know? Um, but to get into this like witchcraft and spells and sorcery and yeah, that and, and orders of, of what, uh, like all of that sounds just uh, fantastical to me. Um, so yeah, I, I love, I, I'm so happy that it's real. Uh, I wanted it to be real. That's why I guess that it was the truth uh, because it's so like, it just sounds like it could be made up, uh, you know? And I think that's part of the, uh, I think that's part of the uh, the fun here. Perhaps it had less to do with how fantastical Carter sounded and more to do with how mine sounded like, not that government conspiracies are boring, but like so straightforward a government conspiracy that it's like, this is the type of story someone who wanted me to believe that they were trying to make something up that sounded believable. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that had more to do with it. Interesting. Yeah, but both, both were like... Uh, yeah, that, that was very compelling. Um, I wish, I think probably would be good, maybe a good recommendation, uh, uh, at least for me next time, uh, take some notes down while this is happening. You know? Yeah, it's difficult to remember everything. Yeah, yeah. This was great. So well done. Well done. Uh, well done. Uh, yeah, both of you. And uh, it's good. It was a lot of fun. And I guess with that, we'll go ahead and conclude it. And honestly, I can't wait to see... Who brings what next episode? Brett, since you won, are we saying that you get to pick who the next guesser is? I think that's a fairly adequate prize. So, please. Hmm. I'm going to go uh I'm going to go Aaron on the next uh Aaron's the next, the next guesser. guesser. Yeah. Yes. Can't wait. Excellent. So then uh we you and I come to fisticuffs. Yeah. Uh, next episode, and I guess behind the scenes, we'll flip the coin on who does which story. Sounds good. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Trust Don't Verify. 94.9. <laughs> we go country. <laughs>